many ways, United played very well, actually. Goodness knows why Kenny Dalglish allowed his team to give Paul Scholes as much room as he did. Liverpool were quite lucky not to be more severely punished for that. United did lack a lot of incision, apart from when they strung a really fantastically incisive move together to create the goal. And I felt like at the end, Dalglish's substitutions, well, basically, the, we didn't really respond to his substitutions well enough. And I think that and that cost us momentum and uh, a couple of defensive errors cost us the game. It's a fair summary, I think. I mean, Scholes, Scholes was excellent, but no one put him under any pressure. I mean, he did that all day long, can't he? Give him the ball, he'll spray the ball around. And it's just like he was 18 again, really doing exactly as he would have done 20 years ago. And that's remarkable that even the really basic bit about just pressing and evening numbers up in midfield, Liverpool didn't do. And they, they handed the initiative to United for long periods of that game. But, but you're right, in the end, Scholes coming off was a you know, pretty dramatic change in the, the momentum in the match, wasn't it? And uh, Liverpool... Now, despite having very little of the play or the ball for about you know, 75 minutes or so, managed to swing the game around in the last 15 minutes. Yeah, and it was it was just a horrible occasion. I mean, as, as everyone who listens to the show knows, I'm not a big fan of Liverpool against Manchester United in general. I think it tends to bring out the worst in both sets of supporters and it's kind of weirdly dehumanising. But of course, a lot of fans love it for the intensity and it doesn't get more intense in terms of football rivalry unless you go to, I don't know, Uruguay or something. Yeah, I reckon Nationale against Penarol's probably worse just about and that I was just over there last week were you really no I wasn't (laughs) okay you hanging out with what they call the firm yeah the ultras <laughs> yeah so the Liverpool fans were booing Patrice Ever for 90 minutes as we suggested that they might do they were trying to inject some humour into the situation with we're not racist we only hate Manx chants but there was nothing funny about it of course I understand why Liverpool fans don't recognise that because their uh, manager said it was a bit of friendly banter I'm not in the slightest bit surprised that that was Dalglish's response of course but uh, I thought it was pretty offensive because clearly it wasn't just friendly banter and for all uh, Liverpool fans saying, and, and many of them have come on the blog this week to say that uh, we were just booing him because he's a liar. Well, that, I mean, that, that might be their justification. It's, it's just not quite right, though, is it? It's not on the mark, that one, because effectively what was happening was 40,000 white guys were booing a black guy for complaining about being racially abused. And I don't care how much they try and justify it. There's a lot of moral equivalence going on. Oh, look what you are doing. No, so it was all right. Clearly nonsense, that argument. And in the end it was just completely and utterly disgraceful and and the one guy who was arrested for doing the monkey gesture was caught on camera and rightfully arrested although I've heard anecdotal evidence that it wasn't just one guy it was pretty frequent and it was lots of people in the main stand at Anfield and and so that's that's pretty terrible and I didn't want it to become a whole big United versus Liverpool thing because as you've said many times on this show it's much bigger than that it's a dehumanising element that's really disturbing and, and the fact that you know, partisanship and you know quote unquote support for Luis Suarez has turned into uh, you know a genuine campaign of hate and actually stimulated racism in the same uh, tone and it's, uh, it's I mean I really think it's put race relations back quite a bit and I am I'm worried as many journalists have said and Gordon Taylor PFA chairman has said that it, the severe reaction and the fact that people might look at that and go actually we can get a really big reaction out of our fans by just turning it into a partisan issue I'm, I'm worried that that will stop any other players reporting it I mean it's certainly going to take a brave player to do it now and Patrice Evra is perhaps the the model uh, of somebody who would complain but not everyone would I mean Jim Beglin said at the end of the game when Evra made a pretty bad mistake in his positioning after a generally good performance for Liverpool's second goal said perhaps the emotion of the occasion has got to him and the the commentators handled it unsurprisingly badly I thought it's it's a, a conversation way out of the realm of football commentary in fairness yeah. to them it's it's not something you would expect them to necessarily be able to have a good sensitive grasp of but what Jim Beglin was saying was the emotion of being booed for 90 minutes by 40,000 fans stirred up into a frenzy of hatred by a deliberate misinformation campaign by the club that they support that's that's what got to Patrice Evra and he looked rough at the end of that game and I hated seeing it and it I don't know I, I was about to say it had nothing to do with United and Liverpool but I think really truly honest reflection wouldn't allow me to say it had nothing to do with that because we are who we are as human beings and we perceive the world through the lenses of you know our own perspective and I am a United fan and so I have a kind of emotional connection with Patrice Evra because of what he represents for Manchester United but separate Separating that out, I thought this was 
a horrible two hours for humanity. And actually, you know, I, I kind of felt bad for the Liverpool fans as much as anything else. I, I was watching it thinking, you've basically been tricked and this is what you think you're supposed to do. This is how you think you're supposed to react. This is what you think is the right way to deal with this situation. You know, someone dared to attack Liverpool. You must defend Liverpool. And it, is, it wasn't a very mature response, is it? And and, and, and you do feel there's a, an element of the herd going on here and, it, and it's it's pretty sad I, I mean for all that partisan bit and there is you know I'm passionate United fan have been for more you know 30 years or so and so Liverpool being involved does evoke something more than if it was not Liverpool I suppose but for all that you still have to have respect for Liverpool as an institution being one of the oldest in in England one of the most successful a global name and with that comes a global responsibility and I think it's been a really really and we've said it haven't we it's been a really poor episode for Liverpool they've they've acted in extremely ill-advised manner and they've in, in deliberately provoking an emotional response to this and uh, everything that's happened afterwards is entirely because of the way that Liverpool handled this situation and it's almost all negative I can't think of a single good thing and and they've got some horrible press as a result and y- you know you wonder whether the club might step back and have a think about this and I, I know a lot of it was driven by Dalgleish but Fenway Sports Group were totally silent be- and they've given him license to do that and and so if I was John Henry and uh, the rest of the investors I might be thinking that this is not not the, the most sensible approach to the, this kind of incident and we might be thinking about how our PRR effort might change a little bit in the future because sponsors will be looking at this for sure because not only have Liverpool been given quite a rough ride in the press now and rightly so but uh, I'm sure that's globally reflected as well yeah and I, I really hope it is because they need to be held to account to their actions so as I got to the got to the end of the game and I was thinking I mean you played the Star Wars music at the end of the last show and I was thinking all hope appears to be lost here the empire has struck back this is the end of the dark second act of the trilogy but we all know what's coming right and that is a a ragtag bunch of like small sort of hairy little creatures right who are really endearing and full of kind of innate talent and will you're talking about the disabled brothers exactly exactly we have got (laughs) an ewok on each flank we are going to be absolutely fine and i am really looking forward to patrice evra scoring the winner in the 93rd minute when they come back to Old Trafford in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's, that's going to be interesting. How are United fans going to react to Luis Suarez? I mean, because this is very different and I'm not engaging in moral equivalence here when I say that Luis Suarez will get a poor reception at United and it's got nothing to do with his race. It will have everything to do with what has happened. But it'll be interesting to see how United fans react because we've all been safe in our ivory towers going, oh, look at how terrible Liverpool fans and Liverpool the club have reacted. And so there's, a, there's an element of of you know, potential hypocrisy about this if we give Luis Suarez a hard time uh, but it'll be for very different reasons you know I would absolutely love it if we lived in a world where 80,000 people took the moral high ground <laughs> and were like listen we don't want to stoop to your level we're not going to boo him but of course it's ridiculous because literally what happened was Liverpool fans booed the victim of the events Yeah, and booing the perpetrator whilst not something that I personally would do is obviously not the same thing it's, it's obviously Obviously yeah. not the same. So I guess Obviously. We, I guess we should talk a little bit about the actual game. But yeah, there was an actual football match as well. Yeah, almost forgot that amid all the drama of the uh, the hate campaign that was going on. David de Gea, talking of hate campaigns, uh, he's he's had a lot of stick for his part, particularly in the first goal. Uh, some extraordinarily poor decision making and flappy goalkeeping. I've seen a lot of people saying it's all right having a go at de Gea, but where were the defenders? And yes, it was poor defending, but surely the confidence and organisation in defending a corner exudes from the goalkeeper out to the centre halves. Yeah, I mean, I, I think his mistake was, uh, in the end, he made a mistake not you know, not properly clearing it by taking absolutely everybody out and being a lot stronger about it. And it allowed Andy Carroll to bully him on the line. So in that situation, if he was going to get bullied, he had to stay on the line. And, and he'd, just, he'd probably saved the ball if he'd done that. But, uh, yeah, because... Cause... But, I mean, so... It's a, and, and, and it is absolutely true that no one attacked that ball as it came in and there was a free header. So that's a mistake. So... I mean, for me, it's about 30% De Gea's fault. It's his fault because he, when he made a decision to come out, he didn't get anywhere near the ball. 
he didn't get anywhere near the ball because Andy Carroll was blocking his way. He wasn't strong enough to get Andy Carroll out of the way and he wasn't strong enough to clear absolutely everybody along with it. I mean, you can imagine what Peter Schmeichel would have done there. He'd have taken everybody out with his you know, massive frame and whether it was a ball man, his own man or the opposition man or the referee, they'd have all gone with it and that would have been perfectly fine. I don't can't say I've ever seen a penalty given for a goalkeeper punching a ball out and taking 15 guys out at the same time. So that was, you know, De Gea was partly at fault there. A lot of that's to do with experience though, I think, that kind of mistake and and i'm sure that'll get better uh with with age and experience and and a lot of it's to do with his frame and his confidence he's not confident in the language yet he's not confident to organize his back four so all of that will come bad mistake i'm not having that he made a mistake for the second one it was about 10 yards out and quite lashed it in i mean i'm not quite sure what could have been done there but um but generally speaking a, a lot of ill confidence going on from de gea i think i called him de gea a few times there de gea clapped at a few crosses dropped a couple of balls looked generally pretty nervous stared at his feet in a rather teenage way at some time at some points and, and it's pretty sad to see it was all round a pretty unedifying performance I mean the, the problem with trying to come for that cross is he never looked like he could get absolutely anywhere near the ball because there was a, a huge crowd of players in between him and the ball and he didn't even try to leap over the top of them he sort of nudged Carroll a bit and then the ball hit the top of his head and went in the back of the net I mean yeah you really it really couldn't have made him look more inept if it tried of course this doesn't mean he's not a absolutely fabulous young goalkeeper but emphasis on the young and emphasis on the real distinct lack of confidence at the moment which is has to be a concern for United because well it is it is a concern and by I'm I'm, I'm also concerned with how it's happened so yes it's, it's bound to be a factor of the performances it's not filling him with any confidence I'm sure it's a factor of the defense being rotated constantly I mean I, th- I saw someone tweeted a stat about 34 different uh, combinations in defense this season that's insane that can't possibly help a young goalkeeper who doesn't speak the language it's, it might be a, a press although given that he doesn't speak or read English very well that's probably quite helpful uh, I, I don't know how much he actually reads his timeline on Twitter he sp- seems to spend most of the time telling his girlfriend how beautiful she is very romantic for those of you who speak Spanish and of course we're all Spanish language experts these days aren't we so I mean I, I do feel kind of sorry for him I, I, have, I have no doubt that he's got all the talent I mean I think back to we're fortunate that we get a lot of Spanish football here and Sky show lows and I, I think back to the, the couple of seasons in which he emerged with Atletico and, and the UEFA Cup run and, and all of that and he was just just the presence was excellent he just seemed so calm and confident but those same skills seem to be counting against him now because instead of being calm he's indecisive in, in, instead of presence at, of dealing with sorry for the cliche typical Spanish football he's now getting balls pumped at him Liverpool literally took to route one and he's not dealing with it very well so it's, it is pretty hard for him but it's going to be a massive learning curve isn't it and and Ferguson has not decided to criticise him in the slightest he's defended him all the time and you'd expect that although some other goalkeepers he hasn't always done that with so I've seen some ridiculous ridiculous utterly ridiculous reports suggesting that he'll be on his way or he's going to ship him out and or buy another goalkeeper and none of that is going to happen it's not going to happen at all Ferguson is going to continue the same policy policy for the rest of the season De Gea will probably play against Chelsea I mean if he's well enough he will because Anders Lindegaard's out for more than a month so I think there's a lot of hysteria about this and it's not necessary no I mean it's not necessary but then on the other hand if he continues to do this he's gonna cost us really dearly at crucial moments and then that could see his United career absolutely finished I mean it it really could because there are things you just don't come back from I mean you think of uh, Van der Sar who everyone just associates with just pure goalkeeping brilliance every mental characteristic you need to do the job well but he never got it together his whole time at Juventus and ended up at Fulham as a result of it you know which was obviously a massive step below his level of talent it, it was although that's the time when Fulham were spending money and and uh, not always wisely 11 million on Steve Marley I, I seem to remember so yeah I mean d- yes I, I get your point uh, so De Gea could be destroyed and end up going to a smaller Spanish club and starting again yeah it could could happen I, I don't think it will I, I think not while Ferguson's there and I think he'll have a you know he, he's extremely patient with young players well, we'll have a talk about one young player he lost his patience with a bit later in the show won't we but I, it, I just don't see it I, I, Ferguson does not ship young players out for now he's, he's had four years of Anderson playing one good game in ten and all the problems Darren Gibson had before he eventually went and all the problems that Johnny Evans has had and, and Nani's inconsistency and Ronaldo's inconsistency until he became utterly brilliant so I, I really don't see that I think Ferguson will stick with him he'll manage him in the hopefully the right way I, I'm not sure that rotating the goalkeepers is that 
that helpful sometimes. But I, I think we'll see De Gea at United for the long term. That's what I sincerely hope. I know a lot of fans are really seriously on his back and a lot of people were actually really pleased that he was ill against Stoke to give Ben Amos a chance uh, in the first team. A chance which he... Yeah, but this is it's so it's so fickle. It's insane. Yeah. I, saw, I saw tweets of that nature after the charity shield. I mean, there were bad press reports about De Gea and a lot of this is driven by the press. I'm not sure that the press always reflect public opinion often they shape it as well and and uh, there were bad press reports uh, after the pre-season game so his first one I think it was in New York this was always going to be the story I wrote this in my profile of David De Gea when he joined that it would be a tough season abandoned mistakes he made a few mistakes at Atletico in his, the second half of the campaign last season uh, he would be under an extreme spotlight and the press would be looking for the story because the only story to write is he's a flop there's no story in he's brilliant none at all there's an element of self-fulfillment there and I think we shouldn't forget Van der Sar made mistakes as well and Van der Sar was nowhere near as good at, as David De Gea was at 21 I mean remember Van der Sar was 40 when he left United you know so think about Van der Sar 20 years ago he was still in the IH youth team there's so few goalkeepers who've reached the very top um, Ike Casillas is one uh, Buffon was another but not loads and so David De Gea to get to this point in his career already is a big step and uh, and we should be a little bit forgiving of that and and the other thing is Anders Lindegaard gets an incredibly easy ride as a result of this I mean I, I, I he never fills me with tons of confidence that he's going to pull off the spectacular he's solid and he doesn't make any obvious mistakes not really obvious ones but if you if you ask me is he ever going to be sorry for the cliche again a world-class goalkeeper I'd say absolutely not he's you know he's a decent goalkeeper no more than that I'm with Peter Schmeichel on this one well I mean you know if you're going to be with someone Peter Schmeichel's probably a pretty good judge of these things you'd imagine short-termism is a huge problem in football and as you say there there was really not that much of a story in young goalkeeper is signed for a fortune and is brilliant you know that especially at Manchester United this is not a very interesting story I mean the press obviously and I don't mean like the press has an anti-Manchester United agenda the press has a paper selling agenda and right. you know big stories involving United are not about how successful we are because that's been the big story at Manchester United for 20 years you know we just win everything and all our players are brilliant it's great you know but the, right. but the press are kind of bored of writing about that so you know and no one, no one wants to read a brochure for Manchester United if you want that kind of thing you go to manunited.com so I mean it's just that it's just that I'm absolutely not saying there's some kind of press agenda against him I'm just saying that's the only story there is a press agenda against him and not in not in a not in a uh, deliberate well thought out way but the press got on his back very quickly and now want to prove themselves right well yeah there's some so they, they've kind of created their own agenda against him I think interesting that David De Gea or Anders Lindegaard were both missing from the midweek uh, match against Stoke City Old Trafford. Lindegaard's turned his ankle in training. He'd be out for at least a month, we're told. And, and David De Gea phoned in sick. I, I did wonder for a while whether that was a genuine sickness or one of those kind of Monday mornings, God, I can't face work this morning feelings. Yeah, we all know that one, don't I we? I don't really want to play against Stoke. <laughs> um, can he do it on a wet and windy Tuesday night against Stoke? Apparently doesn't want to. There, there's some irony in that he actually, that was one of his better games this season wasn't it at the Britannia he was in the stands which of course the commentary team decided meant he couldn't really be ill because if you're well enough to be in the stands you're well enough to be in goal as some idiot never said I mean well honestly it's like it's not like if you're well enough to play out you're well enough to go to school it's quite a different job to sit in the stands than actually be the goalie for Man United I reckon that's a lot harder uh, Ben Haymars had a very good game he didn't have a lot to do but he did the two things or so that he had to do very well which you know is, is lovely to see just because he's a product of our youth team and, and fantastic to see him getting uh, his full debut in the Premier League it is uh, it's, I mean I have to say it's a little bit odd that he's at the club he really should be out on loan somewhere and uh, Cusack hasn't, still hasn't moved on oh, I forgot about him <laughs> yeah he does exist he does exist he actually played in a reserve game so uh, I mean in theory he could he could start against Chelsea I mean God, God oof, that gives you a shiver doesn't it just that thought yeah I mean I think I would start Ben Amos I know it's kind of a ridiculous thing to say but I think I would it's it's not, it's not inconceivable that De Gea is fit for that game. So. No, of course not. And if he is, I would definitely start De Gea because it's all going to be fine because he'll be one-on-one with Torres and Torres will blast it six yards over the bar. <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't just say that. I didn't just say that just in case the gods of the gods of hubris are listening. It, yes, we've suffered for that one already, haven't we? I, I... Yeah, but we, we also have brilliant reverse curse powers because uh, you had spent a good 20 minutes on our live blog questioning Ji Sung's path 
off Ji Sung Park's very worth as a human being uh, at the point at which he scored the goal. Well, I'd, I'd put one comment about it. Yeah. I didn't question his worth as a human being. No, I know. He's very I valuable could, I, in some circles. He is. He's, 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 a, he's a lovely lad. He seems to be a lovely lad anyway. But yeah, a fine finish, by the way. Uh, and an absolutely brilliant goal, that United goal. Stunning United goal. And, and uh, I'm not sure I've ever seen Park Ji Sung finish better. I mean, you're, you're more used to Park getting in the right position and then kind of shinning it along the floor wide or something like that, aren't you? Yes, you are indeed. Um, really good United goals were in short supply against Stoke. Uh, but I, I thought it was a really assured and impressive performance against, I have to say, the worst team at Old Trafford this season, apart from that time we got beat 6-1. <laughs> yeah, interesting. It's, it, Stoke had never very good at Old Trafford. I mean, it, it's, it's odd. They're, uh, they're like a, an international team that just doesn't travel very well. I guess yeah, you call them passionate or, or whatever you want to label Stoke fans. They, they always seem to raise the volume at the Britannia, especially against United, uh, with whom they believe they have a genuine rivalry. They don't, if you're listening. No, it's like it's like England and Germany, whereby like there are enemies, but they don't care at all about us. It's the same as that. Yes, because they're vastly superior most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and they just don't like the Dutch. Yeah, very true. Uh, and so, I mean, there's that, that kind of thing going on. But away from home, I don't remember the last time Stoke actually put a decent performance in against United. I mean, it was 2-1 last year, but it was another one of those that United were comfortable winners. And, and uh, before that, Stoke haven't won at Old Trafford since 1980 or something. So it's uh, they, they were never likely to cause United much trouble. And I think you're right. United put in a pretty assured performance, lots and lots of possession. There was never any danger we were going to lose that game, but not enough cutting edge. I mean, in the final third, was there? There just wasn't enough cutting edge. And I guess that's um, we're missing Nani and Ashley Young and Rooney particularly. And, and that central midfield is is still an issue because even if uh, Skulls is playing well and he played very well uh, he's he's very deep and, and he's playing from a position of you know being very deep so it's uh, it's not providing that cutting edge in the, the last side I mean at one stage when United went two up United had two shots on goal and they were both penalties the one shining sparkling blade uh, of incision is of course Antonio Valencia who something he's something amazing has happened to Valencia in the last month uh, he was phenomenal again against Stoke he's been eating his shredded wheat hasn't he yeah, Pep Guardiola <laughs> called him the best winger in the world at the moment and you could, you can't disagree with that is that true is is that quote is that a real quote because I, I saw some speculation that that might not have been an accurate quote uh, well I don't know I did not hear it direct from the man himself so uh, I too am following the trail of that one but uh, I, it, yeah. hey even if he didn't say it say it it's about right isn't it's it it's true yeah. I mean there's no hotter you know, pure winger in the world than Antonio Valencia right now he's in great form he absolutely roasted every left back he, he sees at the moment he goes past them with you know consummate ease and he did the same against Stoke and uh, he's a, you know he's a real a real outlet for United at the moment and that's especially important with being the only fit genuine winger at the club uh, two two questions have come in uh, from at Sporty Muslima which are kind of relevant to this discussion uh, why despite such a large percentage of possession did United fail to score more goals against Stoke and based on current form which player is more crucial to United Valencia or Carrick and we are not allowed to sit on the fence on that one. That's a really di- that's a really difficult question. I think that second I think, one. I think I've answered the first part. The, the second one. Uh, well, you guess you'd have to say Michael Carrick because uh, he's playing really well, uh, and I know Valencia is an extremely destructive force at the moment. But without any kind of quality in central midfield, uh, United are really going to struggle to beat anyone. I mean, we've seen this over the last two years, haven't we? Times when when pretty average teams have, have bossed United in central midfield, and Carrick's renaissance this season since November uh, has. You know, played a big part in, in that not happening and especially United's form away from home it's just amazing to think that you know in October we were talking about Michael Carrick as a long forgotten member of the squad who we were kind of wondering where and he was ever going to play again for United right well he hadn't started uh, and, and he didn't until November the 19th against Swansea yeah and he's absolutely transformed our season I mean without Carrick without the two of them okay and I know we're not supposed to fence it and I think ultimately I'm with you we need Carrick more than we need Valencia just because just because what you lose if you lose the centre of midfield is more devastating than than if you lose that bit of cutting edge because we do have other players that can provide some cutting edge although you know it's really nice not to have to answer that question because they're both so crucial to United but yeah I mean Carrick's form just continues a pace he hit the 
100 pass club again uh, against Stoke and him and Paul Scholes if you just don't pressure him and the fact that Stoke looks extremely reluctant to come over the halfway line it's sort of interesting how bad they are at Old Trafford because I think it's fair to say that United have lost their fear factor to a lot of teams that come up against us now teams are less scared of us than they used to be because there are these kind of frailties in the side that that didn't used to be there but Stoke have still got it big time it was like they were playing against well it's episode 99 in the rank cast it's like they were playing up against 99 United and they didn't want to leave us any room at all so they just sat off the whole time and it was just never going to work for 90 minutes it was a very very timid performance I thought I mean look if if I was an opposition manager I'd stick three in midfield a couple of ratters and I'd pressurise the bejesus out of Carrick and Skulls and I'd get especially dynamic players with a bit of pace and a bit of tackling ability in there and that's going to cause United problems definitely going to cause United problems I mean as good as Carrick's been he's not the kind of guy who's going to get around the pitch loads and and Skulls is about 97 now so it's uh, I mean that's the way to get at United and and Liverpool and then Stoke didn't do it at all I mean it'd be interesting to see what Chelsea do at the weekend though because uh, they have got some dynamic players who don't know if Michael Essien will play he's uh, he's only really back in training he played a reserve game didn't he but uh, didn't he get on, he might got on the bench as well uh, he's definitely the kind of player who, who might be uh, dominant in that kind of situation uh, and it'd be an interesting matchup a tough game for tough game for United we'll get on to Chelsea later but but I am surprised at how uh, opposition players have allowed United to ease through some of these games especially Paul Scholes I mean you'd think they'd put him under a little bit more pressure I mean it's, it's, it's one of the watch goals again isn't it just the, the quality and the ease of play and he, he just you know controls the ball in an instant flicks it one way flicks it the other reverse pass here reverse pass there and, and it's just all so incredibly easy for him it, when he first came back and he kind of made a mistake for the the second goal that Arsenal scored and then he gave the ball away a lot against Newcastle and it was it was kind of like oh please don't let this be a you know Ali in the later stages of his career or George Foreman coming out of retirement for the eighth time please please don't let that happen to Skulls and it really is not happening is it because he's had a couple of games in a row where he's been allowed to play and he's been scintillating yeah well totally I mean but it's, it's like a training match for him I, I mean I don't I honestly do not remember a time that anyone tried to tackle him and put him under pressure and I know it's in a, in a way that's difficult because he's so good with the ball and he doesn't need any time on it at all and he, and he really doesn't need much space he'll just, you know bring it under control and pass the ball off but but last season he definitely struggled against physical yeah no opponents. absolutely in a, in a lot of games and, 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 and it's it's sort of blindingly obvious it, that, that's why I was so confused I mean by Dalglish's tactics and, until he made the switch and until Skulls went off and baffled by Tony Pulis's tactics just baffled by his you know reluctance to even try and win the game Seem, seemed seemed really odd because you know a, a United midfield of Skulls and Carrick is, is totally overrunnable but if you let them have the ball then they're going to batter you because those two passing little triangles oh it was just beautiful the passing chalkboards after that game they were they were a passing chalkboard fan's dream and I tell you a player who had a really really nice looking chalkboard after his uh, nice cameo was Paul Pogba a, a name that many United fans have uh, been really excited about for some time gets his Premier League debut against Stoke uh, which of course a certain Danny Welbeck did a couple of seasons ago and he looked real real good much better than he's looked uh, when he's come on in the past in Carling Cup appearances for the first team. The king is dead. Long live the king. Raul yeah, Morrison has gone. We've got a new youth team star to rave about. I mean, uh, look, anyone who's watched the youth team, the academy last season, and at times the reserve this season, uh, knows what kind of quality Paul Pogba's got. And uh, one day, all the commentators will learn not to compare him to Patrick Vieira because uh, they they didn't though in this game. They didn't. No, I know, I know. I was I was, I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it it didn't happen it was a lovely cameo he showed a great range of movement passing always wanted the ball it stepped over a couple of times lovely turn a couple of great crosses from the right wing that's uh, not always his forte that one and uh, look he, he looked a player who can you can perform at this level. He looked a bit bigger and stronger than he had done, say, six months ago. That's, that's important, I think. And you, know, you can't tell me he does not deserve a run in the, not necessarily in the starting lineup, but in the squad now, I think, given United's central midfield resources. He's, he's put a marker down there and said, I can perform at this level. At Happy Hero, our friend Howard asks uh, whether he's going to get 90 minutes at some point this season. I, I'd say the likely, I, I, I mean, it really does depend on how the running goes, doesn't it? But I, w- I wouldn't have said it's impossible, especially with the Europa League coming 
coming up. Yeah, I'd be surprised. I mean, maybe maybe if we've won the league with a couple of games to go, that'd be nice. There's there's optimism for you. Yay! So, <laughs> I, I'd be surprised. I mean, he hasn't started a game yet, and not in any any you know any game. He came on as a substitute in the Carling Cup as well. So I'm not sure about that. If he's developing rapidly and Ferguson believes in him, maybe. I mean, look, that is that was a definite. That was saying something, wasn't it? That 20 minutes, Absolutely. 15, 20 minutes of very bright play. It looked like he was hungry. Looked like he wanted. Didn't look like a player wanted to leave. But yeah, Ferguson will have taken note of that, and you know he'll get another chance this season, I think. And he really deserves it, and he, he really needs it as well. And and United need it as well because if they want to keep hold of him, stick him in the reserves is is not going to work for him. And it, it's uh, it's um, it's one of those things where young players, some of them are patient. Uh, David Beckham didn't really get into the United team till he was 21 or so. I mean, he had a few games before that, went out on loan. Some of them really want it young, and Pogba appears to be a player who really wants it young, as was Ravel Morrison. And he, of course, he's gone in the transfer window. Yeah, um, a sort of pointed appearance, really, in some ways. I mean, I think just to quickly answer, answer add to the, your answer about whether he's going to get 90 minutes, a huge amount of it depends on Cleverly and Anderson and how quickly their form and fitness returns. Fitness and form, I guess. Because if Tom Cleverly comes back and is playing the kind of football he was playing earlier in the season, it's going to be very difficult to oust him from the, the first 11. But but there's a, there are a lot of games coming up if we, if we do anything like decent in the Europa League. But yes, a, a, a kind of pointed appearance the day that Ravel leaves, Pogba gets some Premier League action. I don't... I mean, we did have a huge number of injuries, so perhaps it's a, a bit coincidental, but we've had a huge number of injuries before this season and Pogba hasn't got anywhere near the first team, so kind of felt a bit like, uh, look what you could have won from Fergie. It did a little bit. I, I'm not sure I'd buy that that's the case, but it definitely felt like it, didn't it? Yeah. It, we, we spoke about uh, this a couple of days ago and, and I think we both said that we felt kind of sad that something's come to an end because there's, there was just... And I've, actually, I felt sad for two reasons. I felt sad, one, because Ravel Morrison's gone and he's an incredibly talented player and uh, I think he should be fulfilling that talent at United. And it's not often that incredibly talented players slip through United's grasp. The ones that leave are, are the ones that aren't good enough. And I, I don't yet believe that he's not good enough to make it at United. I, I'm actually with Paddy Curran, who said he's too good to fail. And, and so I'm sad for that reason. I was also sad because I, I read and heard too much revisionism. And uh, I thought there were too many United fans, well, doing two things. One, insulting Morrison, saying he's a fool and an idiot. And two, saying he's not quite as good as people made out to be. And and neither of those things are true. And, and and I think we've had great amount of evidence coming through. I mean, I spoke to some of the key players in the transfer and, and uh, we've had a really good amount of evidence about what went on exactly and, and why Morrison has gone. And, you know, for two reasons. One, that uh, he, he, as a player, was desperate to play and frustrated that he wasn't getting his opportunity. And we spoke about that last week, a couple of weeks ago, about why he wasn't getting his opportunity. And two, that although the coaching staff had given up on Morrison quite some time ago, a player who didn't seem to make enough of an effort in training, if he ever turned up for training, drifted in and out of games. Uh, Ferguson had still been his sponsor. Uh, interesting words from Ferguson uh, just yesterday, saying that uh, Ravel just needed to get out of Manchester. Uh, and that the move to London might well be the making of him. And it might well be. You know, reports that he's going to West Ham without his entourage, uh, that he won't be, uh, they'll be holed up in a hotel, they're going to treat him like a grown-up, and that Sam Allardyce is prepared to fast-track him into the first team, and he's got a highly incentivized contract that, if he gets into the first team, helps West Ham get promotion, and then is a regular starter in the Premier League, uh, that he's going to get the big, big bucks that uh, people are talking about. Yeah, a fascinating transfer. I- I'd heard the same thing, really, that Ferguson is the person that hasn't given up on him out of everyone and I think the transfer speaks to that because he didn't go to Newcastle uh, he didn't go to a random club the, the my first thought when they said West Ham was that sounds like a disaster waiting to happen that's not a particularly good neck of the woods to be a kid with a eye for a gangster life you know but then I suddenly it twigged wait a minute Big Sam and 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 that puts a really interesting personal perspective on this transfer Ferguson has sold Morrison to a person who's maybe kind of generally perceived as one of his closest allies in football. I mean, Sam Allardyce tipped him off, made sure we bought Phil Jones and didn't let him go to anyone else. Sam Allardyce and, and Fergie tag-teamed Rafa Benitez in the press. They're close, you know. Yeah, that's right. And th- there were, there'll be no secrets here. It, it's not as if uh, United are selling West Ham a dud. No, that's... And uh, West Ham don't know about it. They they know exactly what they're getting and Big Sam needs to turn it around. I think I think actually what Ferguson said yesterday was, was really pointed, that 
fact that he just needed to get out of Manchester and, and reading between the lines, he needed to get away from certain elements. I mean, he has a nose for trouble, Morrison. And if he can go away, he won't be based in the bright lights of the East End. And yeah, I've read some hilarious stuff about, oh, you know, East End gangsters and whatever. Their training grounds out in Essex. He'll probably have some pad out in the middle of Essex somewhere. And, uh, you know, he's, he probably won't see London at all. I, I kind of hope so. I hope he really goes, I need to I need to focus now. I need to stay out of trouble. I need to get my nose clean. I need to show everyone, as he said on Twitter, I need to show everyone what I can do. And uh, he can do loads. He's he's a great talent. And if it's developed the right way, he's going to be a really big player. And United will miss out on that talent. That's a real shame. And I think the fact that he's, Fergie sold him to Allardyce is also quite a personal touch in terms of the player. You know, he's not just letting, he's not throwing him to the Wolves. That would be terrible because then you'd be managed by Mick McCarthy. That that would be really painful. <laughs> um, Ouch. Um, but no, it, you know, it, he's sending him to someone he trusts as well. You know, so yeah. so the, 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 there's something about that that I, I kind of, I don't know, sort of, you know, Ferguson has a huge number of failings as a human being, you know, a, a huge number of things where you think, well, that's really not an ideal type of way to behave. But the way he treats young players is is not one of them. As you say, he, he doesn't give up on young players. And, and this seems to be, well, I can't keep him at the club because we can't train him at the club. His life's being ruined in Manchester. His agent's agitating for a move. He's not getting into the first team and I can't get him to stick to my ultimatums. You know, if he said you've got to turn up for training every day for three months and Morrison didn't, Ferguson can't put him in the first team because that undermines everything else he does at the club. The agent wasn't really you know, agitated for a move as such. I mean, he's pretty much given the given the green light to go and find Morrison another club. And I mean, it's been known for some time, I guess. And and But Morrison was definitely agitating for, for playing time. So definitely. And, and that didn't happen. So we had a frustrated player on our hands there and as well as everything all the other baggage that went with it so and he's too talented not to make a good career of himself I hope this is the the penny dropping uh, he turned down Bolton Wanderers so the the bid was accepted from Bolton and he turned that down um, he's decided that uh, he will get a better chance of playing regularly and that's what he needs for his development uh, true West Ham will come up with a very nice financial package I mean it's um, it's you know, 12 grand a week or so uh, as the base and then it will rise from there to the headline figures that were banded around and 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 so you know they've they've not made it difficult for him but but still he's been prepared to drop down a division and that tells me that it's not all about ego this is a player that wants to make it and he puts the time and work in if the penny is dropped and the stories that go around about Revel Morrison tell you that it might not have done then then he could still make something out of his career the flip side of it is that you know he he hasn't learned and uh, he gets up to the same old tricks he's a player that ultimately just doesn't want it enough and he won't make it at West Ham they'll ostracize him pretty quickly if that's the case and and he'll probably flick from club to club and uh, never really settle down to the career that he should have yeah and you know you you say he doesn't want it enough and that might be that might be what it is because that's definitely the case for some people or it might be that he's too damaged you know that his past has left scars which have never been treated properly and so he's never been able to kind of outrun the weight of baggage that he's carrying from his upbringing and his young life and all that kind of stuff so you know I I, I, I just I've seen you know seen some United fans saying like oh he's kind of dead to me sort of thing and it's like well alright that's that's fine if you just want to see the whole world through purely red tinted spectacles but from my perspective I cannot help but wish him well the Fraser Campbell scored an absolutely brilliant goal uh, yesterday and there's, there's that thing about players developed at United it never goes away they're, they're, they're always sort of our kids I don't know to me but I'm a bit soppy when it comes to stuff like that but I, I'm, I'm definitely going to be No I, I'm with you on that one I you know I, I look to the, the young players that have been you know come through the academy and you want them to do work well and one one thing is you know almost universally the case that the guys who've been brought up to the United Academy system go on to have decent careers you know and they're, they're schooled in the right way and they're professionals and, and you know most of the time that's the case and of course Campbell you, you feel sorry for him because he's been for, for absolutely ever hasn't he with uh, these injuries and it's a real shame because he was a real bright player at 20 and uh, and could have gone on to really good things and, and it's nice that he's got a couple of goals in, in the past week and, and you hope that he stays clear of injury now and can make a good career for himself of course uh, another academy graduate agent G-bomb shoot 
And did he, did he shoot? Taron Gibson has never lit up Old Trafford like that before. Magic scenes as the words spread around the crowd and the chants of one Darren Gibson, one Darren Gibson were quickly followed by a genius rendition. Not since Beckham came back with Milan has Fergie sign him up been so hilarious. Yeah, I know. It's pretty, and Ferguson was great afterwards. He said it was all part of the plan. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. Wonderful stuff. But, you know, I mean, joking aside, what a crucial goal for Manchester United. Darren Gibson just scored could be a title winning goal could, could be <laughs> <laughs> oh the gorgeous irony of that oh just one one last thing about the Pogba substitution uh, not so much as a message to Ravel as a message to the player you know to Pogba he stayed through the transfer window and you've got to imagine that at some point it wasn't necessarily definite that we'd still have Paul Pogba in January uh, in February well a lot, lot of clubs sniffing around and um He's uh, he's with uh, Raiola, the the big super Italian agent who who has a lot of big players and Mario Balotelli's agent uh, m- might tell you a few things there. So so definitely yeah, definitely wasn't certain that he would be. Of course, United are, are not in a desperate need to sell him right now. There's uh, there's what about 14 months left on his contract effectively. So there's no desperate rush, but they do want to tie him down. There's some irony in this that of course a bright performance, albeit just a substitute performance, will uh, will give his agent some extra bargaining power with the powers that be yeah that's that's fine I, I don't mind him having a bit of bargaining power so long as uh, so long as we do get him to sign uh, lovely tweet from Ryan Tunnicliffe by the way saying he was sad that one of his best mates had left the club uh, it was kind of a nice thing to see just that on its own but then his, his follow up tweet was uh, something along the lines of by the way I'm just going to keep signing contracts if they offer me them I'm sure his agent wouldn't have been too happy to see that but <laughs> but nice nice that, to see he's a United lad <laughs> There's a little, there's a little um, subscript to this, though, isn't there? Because um, obviously Morrison's gone. There's the the contractual situation with Paul Pogba and, and will he stay, will he go? And David Petrucci, who's had so many injuries, obviously a massively talented player. That one, and he's out, he's out of contract at the end of the summer as well. Looks like he might be. They'll, they'll probably offer him a one year option, but looks like he he might take the option to go back to Italy instead. And then Ezekiel Fryer's also out of contract, and there's quite a few younger players that and Fryer's also have ha- has had a lot of injuries. As well, so in a way, you can kind of understand the club allowing the contracts to run down, but it's definitely a risky proposition. So that's that's one point. The other point I I wanted to make really is that the one of one of the impacts of financial fair play is that uh, clubs are seeking out players at a ever younger age and uh, attempting to pick up talent early. I mean, United have clearly been doing that. Try to to buy talent on the market. I mean, either bring it through, uh, you're lucky if that happens, or buy talent on the market at a very young age because you get a better deal. Well, the market's not stupid here, so the market works out that there's a demand for young players and and not some kind of Milton Friedman-esque supply-side economist here but I'm definitely telling you that uh, there's enough information in the football market that once people start hunting young players and ever greater sophistication with other scouting networks that the price will go up and it's the price both for buying the young players and 20 year old Kevin De Bruyne going for eight million pounds or something this week to Chelsea and also their wages and and this is one of the other things that will happen so uh, Paul Pugba on a not if not free very close to free any year's time will be very attractive to an awful lot of European clubs and and, and he'll be able to command good wages, bigger wages than he'll probably get offered at United. And and uh, this is a dilemma because United are playing in a, a very open market and they're also at the same time trying to change contracts around at the club to be more heavily incentivised, which which might not attract all the kind of players they want. No, because you can't imagine the contracts at Manchester City are particularly incentivised. Although, having said that, we managed to attract a young man away from the bright lights of the Wastelands uh, to the glory that is Old Trafford. Fred the Red signs up. Fred the Red, very nice. Frederico Vasselli, yeah, a bit, bit too close to Darius Vassell. Well, you know, I know, I mean, <laughs> Vasselli, Vassell, worrying. Uh, yeah, interesting. I, I've got to admit, I, I really don't know much about this player. I haven't seen him play for the elite development squad at City, as they like to call it. Uh, captain of the Swiss under-19 side or something along those lines. Oh, I'm sure he's got plenty of talent. Uh, interesting that he said, very pointed, that Manchester City aren't interested in young players. Uh, they want to get success very quickly, uh, and so they can't afford to develop younger players. And, and that's the exact reason he went to United, that uh, United are interested in young players. So a um, bit of a dig at City there, I'm sure everyone will welcome into the club with open arms as a result. Yes, his, his initial uh, response to joining Manchester United appeared to be tweet subtle abuse at Manchester City, thus endearing him to millions instantaneously. So impressive work 
work from the lad from a PR perspective uh, said he was really delighted that Sir Alex Ferguson was bringing him to such a fantastic club <laughs> it's like excellent good lad good lad Fred the Red ding 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 points 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 very good stuff we're going to come on to talking about Chelsea as a team very shortly as we preview the weekend's game against them but beforehand uh, you, you put the John Terry case on the rundown Ed is this because you think that our listeners have not heard enough about us talking about race relations in football over the last few weeks yeah well we don't need to repeat all that but I'm just I'm just astonished by it I have to say I mean he's uh, he's very successfully appealed to a magistrate I mean it's, just, it's, a, it's not the high court or anything like that and uh, the penalty if he's found guilty of racially abusing Anton Ferdinand is, is a maximum of two and a half thousand pounds I think he could probably afford that that's about two minutes work for him isn't it uh, but but the damage to his reputation is obviously uh, a lot more severe so he's successfully managed to stay the, the hearing until July is it July June July the summer anyway yeah, it's July so after the European Championships citing that he, uh, he has too much uh, work time I mean this is a case that's going to take an afternoon and as we know footballers do not work in the afternoon they play golf in the afternoon so it sounded like uh, nonsense to me but but it will also mean that there's no chance of him having the captaincy stripped away because he's been found guilty which is it will definitely happen if he's found guilty so but but I don't I don't even think he needs to be found guilty now I think just I mean you know bearing in mind he has the right to be you know thought of as innocent until he's guilty been proven in- guilty innocent and innocent until he's John Terry you mean innocent until he's John Terry yeah until he's proven to be John Terry but okay <laughs> So, look, yeah, he is innocent, factually. Uh, but, I mean, this is it's too much to have the leader of the national football team, the team captain, going to a tournament with this hanging over him. I mean, you know, it's not you don't want to prejudice the case, but imagine, by some miracle, I mean, this is an even bigger miracle than if we find out that John Terry isn't a racist, that uh, if England lifted the European Championships, and two weeks <laughs> later, he's found guilty of racially abusing a player. It's incredible. And, and he's going to go to the European Championships with that hanging over his head how does he talk with any authority to the black players in the england dressing room I, I i mean i just i just find it astonishing and the arrogance of the man not only did he does he think that he can dictate to referees on the pitch what they do but he thinks he can dictate to the court system apparently as well and and uh, apparently we've heard through his people that he has no intention of stepping down i mean if i was the fa i'd i'd, uh, I'd solve the problem right now and just fire him yeah i mean if you were the fa ed i think it's fair to say john terry would not have been england captain well no <laughs> so yeah obviously I mean it, it is a difficult situation though I mean genuinely you either have a presumption of innocence or you don't uh, it's, it's all very well to say you know well this this is hanging over him so can he be England captain and of course when Rio had the drugs ban hanging over him he was famously uh, dropped causing Gary Level nearly to go on strike to say you either have a presumption of innocence or you don't mm-hmm. well he hadn't been banned at that point no exactly that's what I'm saying of course England's brave JT uh, doesn't get dropped for, for the accusation and in a way I sort of think I'm glad to live in a society where there is a presumption of innocence and if there is that has to apply across the board I, th- I think there is no question that if it's a question if, if it's a matter of character John Terry shouldn't be the England captain oh no and he, and he wasn't for that very reason for a while until quite ridiculously Fabio Capello punished Rio Ferdinand for not being John Terry y- yeah and and you know I, I think Fabio Capello is not the most subtle man I think it's probably fair to say. You know, he's a man who deals in broad brushstrokes as, right. you know, he, he sits there shoving Stuart Pearce for 90 minutes. You know, he, he's a sort of odd character, isn't he, Capello? So I, it's a sort of odd one in, in that sense. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real shame that John Terry's England captain. I, I guess it's made it even more of a shame, but, but it already kind of was. You know, having John Terry as some sort of, you know, representative of your nation following the legacy of the great Bobby Moore. Well, well, the reason why it's, it's appropriate to talk about it again now is because he stayed this this hearing so he will definitely yeah. go to the European Championships as a potential racist it's just a massive thing hanging over him hanging over the squad hanging over the management it's a it's a PR disaster waiting to happen and, and you know God forbid that England it, it can't win here because if, if England uh, a disaster which is more likely than not and stories start leaking out that not everyone was united behind Terry as they weren't in South Africa remember he, he tried to instigate a revolution against Capello imagine that, that those stories come 
come out in England were a disaster and then he's found to be guilty, all hell will break loose for sure. And and, and the other way around, if England are great and Terry lifts the trophy and, and he's proven to be a racist, it's an utter disaster as well. Yeah, fortunately, everyone making these calculations has worked out that there's absolutely no chance whatsoever that that's going to happen. Well, Greece managed to win the tournament a few years back, so stranger things have happened. So, with sincere apologies to our listeners for talking about both the England national team and John Terry, uh, we'll try and make it up to you now with some of your Twitter questions. At Sporty Muslimer asked us a couple of questions about the Stoke game, but also asked, assuming a fully fit 11, would Cleverly get back in the squad, or is Skulls now more than a bit part player? I think, no, no, Cleverly will come back in. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, I think they can play together. I think a midfield three of Cleverly, Skulls and Carrick is, again, the right sort of opposition is potentially absolutely lethal yeah potentially I mean Ferguson hasn't played a three very often this year well you know, sort of Rooney's playing a lot deeper right but uh, Ferguson has not had three central midfielders to pick for most of this no, season well, this is also very true uh, well, look Scholes is being pushed in there as an emergency uh, going through 90 minutes in a big game come the end of the season is uh, will be asking too much so, so uh, it's not a calculation Ferguson will have to make he needs cleverly back and he needs Cleverly back playing well uh, United need it uh, all the rhythm went out of United when Cleverly got injured and it's, it's a very long time ago now isn't it so we do need Cleverly back it's not going to happen anytime soon though uh, he's he's running and he's still not kicking the ball and training and uh, he's not doing all those turning exercises which are the ones with the ankle injury that, that really do count so uh, you know I, I, I try to tell people this I try to tell them that it take an awful long time as a man who knows exactly what it's like to have serious ankle problems I, I'm telling you it takes a very long time to feel normal and no matter how much training you do and he was never going to make it back by christmas that was always nonsense and and that has been proven right and he won't be back properly until you know basically the late later this month he might make it back for the ajax fixture in a couple of weeks maybe but uh, he's not going to be fully match fit even if he starts training fully on monday he, he definitely wouldn't be fit for that it's going to be so exciting when he does come back though i mean uh, assuming that he can find form relatively quickly he's just going to be vital in that running if he can find form and fitness for, for our running it's going to be really brilliant to have him back and he will have... Re- really brilliant yeah oh, be almost like signing a new player <laughs> just like Paul Skulls has been at Mank Tactics asks will the potential return of Cleverly and Anderson cause problems for Pogba breaking into the first team will it make him leave well I don't know about the second part but yes he, he will drop down the pecking order for sure of course he will you know it's a squad game that there's going to be opportunities because as I keep saying if you look at that fixture list it looks alright at the moment but if we somehow scrape together a run in that Europa League you've got to stick a lot of games into that well potentially nine yeah so which is quarter of the Premier League season basically so yeah yeah, totally there I mean he's going to get some small we've talked about this already but he he will get some opportunities this season but uh, yeah cleverly and Anderson coming back will will force him down the pecking order and and that's, that's just the way it is at jduke underscore asks Regarding the rumour that Jose Mourinho is leaving Real Madrid, England national team? And if not, then United realistically. Where does this leave United in regards to a Sir Alex Ferguson replacement? Who do you think can keep and draw big players to United if Sir Alex Ferguson and Jose Mourinho are out? I mean, it all went completely nuts earlier this week, the uh, rumour mill, didn't it? Because there's a lot of talk that Jose is really fed up at Real Madrid and also has a weird clause in his contract which says that Madrid don't have to be paid compensation if he leaves to go to United. I can't imagine that's true. It's, it's an interesting one, yeah. Well, I mean, he said he wants to go. Um, pundits in Spain have said, it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to go, which is very true with Jose. You don't really know what's the truth and what's just bluster, but it does seem pretty certain that he's fed up at Real Madrid. He's fed up with all the politics. He's going to get out on a high if he does it. I mean, he only ever spends two, two years at a club. Oh, that's his latest trick anyway, isn't it? And it's with Barcelona drawing this week. Real are, are very odds-on for the title now. He's used usurped Barcelona which is incredible he can't, can't do it in an actual game but I think they will win La Liga so if he leaves he'll be leaving on a high interesting where he can go though because it would take Ferguson retiring earlier than he wants to in order for him to come to United I mean does the equation that United miss out on Mourinho if you don't step down factor into it be interesting whether they thought about that there'd certainly be no pressure on Ferguson but if he decided that was the case it's pure speculation of course other than that Mourinho might have a job at 
to go to at City, which would certainly be interesting when he'd be ruling himself out of ever taking the United job, but that job may well come up. And there will definitely be a job at Tottenham uh, unless Harry goes to prison, in which case there will definitely be a job at Tottenham. Yeah, there's either a job at England or Tottenham. I mean, people have said like Mourinho has said nice things about Tottenham in the past or whatever. The profile doesn't seem right, does it? But they have spent a lot of money in recent years, although a lot of their money has been spent on transfer fees. So I think it the, the it looks like they've spent more money than they have in relation to the other clubs because their wage bill is considerably lower than the other clubs around them. Yeah, yeah, they're not paying top four wages just about anyway. So yeah, and that's the problem. They can't pay the, those peak wages. They're they are only paying a proportion of Adebayo's wages, as he told everyone. He earns two hundred fifteen thousand pounds a week. Very nice work if you can get it. Uh, and but Tottenham can't afford to pay that kind of thing, so they can't compete at the very top. Doesn't feel like that's a Mourinho-esque club to me does it no but then I mean if we weren't Manchester United with all the incredible glamour that that conjures up I'm not entirely sure we seem like a particularly Mourinho S club at the moment because he'll obviously be financially hamstrung if he comes to United I mean it's you know there's the, the talk of like well maybe we'll miss out on Mourinho if Fergie doesn't step down for him this summer but as you say he spends two years at a club and Ferguson's talked about a three year plan I mean he's, he said that before so it's it's a kind of nonsense but you know it's entirely possible that Mourinho's next job will be running out by the time Fergie wants to retire uh, where do you go where do you go from Real Madrid that you know there you can't go to Barcelona um, not that he would anyway he's, he's been at Inter he's, he had the Chelsea job you can't imagine him going back to the Chelsea job are we saying that the job at City is available if they don't win the league this season because Mancini is doing a pretty decent job at that club yes there are a group of owners in a hurry and I'm not sure that they'll they have loads of patience with him look I'm not saying that Mancini's definitely fired if he doesn't win the the Premier League this season but Mourinho suddenly becoming available Mourinho coming available might might be the uh, might be the precipitating factor in in Mancini going I mean the owners want to win and want to win big it's an interesting calculation that one could be a fascinating summer as a result I mean I said loads of times that Ferguson was going to retire in 2012 and clearly I was totally wrong about that one because he has no intention of retiring in 2012 I, I doubt I doubt very much that uh, Mourinho will force him into making a decision I, I don't think it hit Ferguson or the club works in that fashion at all if Mourinho is not available and clearly he's going to be their first choice because he guarantees success then uh, then they'll look elsewhere have we ever had the Mourinho conversation in the podcast would you or wouldn't you I, 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 I mean he's a very handsome man but that's not what I mean Are you trying to tell us something here Paul uh, no um, we're a very liberal show that's we okay. are, you know it's fine you wish to out yourself on national iTunes international podcasting no no that's that's not my intention at this time you're saying it could be in the future all that to one side the question of how do you as a fan feel about the prospect of Mourinho being Ferguson's successor the answer to that one as a fan is that I wouldn't really want him being United manager as a fan I think he comes with way too much drama and controversy and the circus that follows in generally speaking his teams don't play nice football I know Madrid has scored an absolute stack of goals so if you just look at it in those very narrow terms you might say that they play exciting football they do at home but in, in some of the big games he's played like three defensive midfield against Barcelona and just try to kick the opposition off the pitch and I wouldn't want to see United ever doing that so there's that side of it of course he guarantees trophies he ju- he's just a winner he just wins everything all the time doesn't he and whatever he does to do it that's what happens and uh, from that perspective it'd be very logical to appoint him Ferguson's now paid uh, a sum of money that's commensurate with, with what Mourinho earns so that's not an issue the management have already budgeted for that kind of thing the, the way the wages uh, and the transfer fees might be an issue but uh, post-IPO might, United might be in a financially more secure position and uh, we might be able to start spending again so you know there's another way of looking at it I suppose The whole thing made me think in much more real terms about the prospect of Ferguson not being the manager at United anymore It's interesting you know the the, the kind of Buddhist mantra that, that everything in life changes change is the only thing that's permanent Sir Alex Ferguson has come become to feel extremely permanent but there there will come a time when he's not the manager anymore and someone else will be the manager and it's very hard to think about individual candidates for that job because the whole concept is so bizarre I mean you go to see United and sat in the dugout is Jose Mourinho or Pep Guardiola or you know Martin O'Neill or Mike Phelan 
<laughs> Brilliant. It's just, it's going to be an extremely strange experience. And I kind of think having two years of Jose Mourinho being mental, it would be quite a good way of dealing with the loss. At least it would be interesting for a couple of years. Well, it'd, be, it'd be like grieving by going out and screwing every girl you could find. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I guess so. I guess in that sense, I'm against it because that does not sound healthy. Well, as we know, you're definitely against it. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's fine if that's who you are. Uh, there was a terrible documentary on in England this week what called Why Aren't There Any Gay Footballers? And it was it was about the, the fact that no footballers have come out as gay since Justin Fashnu. And I kind of think it's interesting in the week of the Evra situation, you know, you can see why there are no footballers who would feel safe to come out because it's... it's yeah. Obviously, it's not directly the same situation, but it just shows you how values and, and, you know, the kind of some of the the accepted norms of wider society that have changed in the last several years have not really moved a lot in football, have they? Well, yeah, football is even more backwards when it comes to gay players than than it is when it comes to black players. So there's there's acceptance. I'm not sure if that's the right word there of of black players. No, I know what you mean. You you don't you're not talking about you. No. okay. And there's not of gay players. There's just not. And the the language that players, fans, some, you know, absolute disgraceful chance by certain London-based clubs and administrators about gay players is utterly disgraceful. I mean, I, I did a piece about uh, when Stephen Davis, England wicketkeeper, came out uh, about a year ago. I did a piece about that. And then, and compared some of the language being used in the world of cricket, cricket to the language being used in the world of football. And when people like the head of the Turkish FA uh, say that they're, they're not human beings and, and stuff like that. And it's uh, it's just, you know, this kind of macho culture that, that that's uh, being gay is just definitely not being to be accepted and football has not evolved to the point and that's why there are no gay footballers or no gay footballers who are admittedly gay. And it's a pretty serious issue when the World Cup is given to a country where it's illegal to be gay for example. Yes well just don't do anything ho 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 as Blatter said in one of his less enlightened moments. No no one of his more enlightened moments remember this is Set Blatter we're talking about. I wonder when he hugged a gay person afterwards. <laughs> certainly did it's like a a tumbler of pictures of him with graham norton and julian clary and so uh, on a completely unrelated note uh ryan giggs and paul skulls look like they're gonna stay another year at manchester united can this be true talking about it yeah he's talking about taking another contract i think they'll give it to him and uh, i don't think ferguson would allow skulls to retire again just won't happen so i I... he's just never never allowed he's gonna be 45 and getting a five minute run out at the end of games probably yeah i I, I can't see any other situation than both of them signing a new one-year contract. I can't believe that Paul Scholes might be at the club at the end of the 2012-13 season. He might well it's be. Like, it's like, I was there at his testimonial. I saw him retire. Yes, you did. But apparently not. So yeah, I think it'll happen. And will he still be playing at the weekend? Who, out of Scholes and Giggs, is going to start in the game against Chelsea, Stamford Bridge, Sunday afternoon? We've done really well in recent seasons at Stamford Bridge, but I yeah, think... Haven't won, haven't won in 10 years, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who haven't won in 10 years? We haven't won in 10 years, we one in Stamford Bridge in 10 years. We battered them last season in the European Cup. We absolutely, absolutely wow. tonked them at Stamford Bridge. No, no, in a league we didn't. No, no, but but it was it was a, a pretty one-sided affair when we destroyed them over two legs in the in the Champions League, and I, I think that... It, it, certainly, it certainly was, yeah, and Ferguson said uh, he's, uh, we've never been very lucky at Stamford Bridge. It, it sounds like a bit of a sob story, but there have been some pretty controversial decisions in Chelsea's favour. I mean, not not least the 1-0 win two seasons ago where they got an extreme extremely soft extremely soft free kick and and uh, scored to win the game uh, yes and they definitely got the rub of the green last season didn't they yes Yes, so 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 in that respect, but yes, I, Fergie's right. I mean, I think it's going to be a very different affair to the Champions League quarterfinal last season. What's the situation, as far as you know, in terms of players coming back from injury? Are Nani and Rooney likely to be fit for Sunday? Yeah, Rooney might be. Yeah, I don't think I don't think Nani is. Uh, Phil Jones might be. As I said, De Gea might well be ready. Ashley Young definitely not ready. All the long-term injuries are definitely not ready either. So I don't think Anderson will be ready for that one. Tom Cleverley is definitely out. So is Vidic. 
And so is Darren Fletcher. Of course, Darren Fletcher doing some coaching with, with the reserves. Very interesting. I wonder where they're. It is nice. It is nice to see that he's still involved. I, I hope it's not a sign that he's he's doing his coaching badges because he's not going to come back and play out. You know, that's conspiracy theories. But be a very tough game at Chelsea. Uh, very very tough game. I mean, they're not playing particularly well either. Uh, and uh, I mean, United playing okay in the last few games. Uh, not startling performances by any means. And uh, and given our record in the Premier League at least at Stamford Bridge uh, being a pretty poor one over the last 10 years it's going to be a super tough game but uh, yeah, at the same time I mean Manchester City are not in great form either are they dropping points all over the place and it's a, it's a really crucial time I and mean, Chelsea and then Liverpool two tough games coming up and, and two really crucial games could could be title deciding in many ways yeah I mean I, I guess Chelsea are not in the best of form but they will raise their game against us you would have thought um, as, as of course Liverpool will next week it's very difficult to pre- predict United's lineup because the, the injuries will play such a huge part in that. Uh, interesting, Ashley Cole won't get a chance to have a rematch with Valencia because he got himself a second yellow card because he was scared. Yeah, he did it on purpose. Yeah, no yeah. doubt about it. It was Beckham against Azerbaijan all over again. He he took the player out in order to get himself booked so he didn't have to face Antonio. Interesting subplot, of course. Uh, predicted that there might be snow in London at the weekend. and uh, Orange uh, ball. It came to Chelsea's. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great? I, I'm sure Abramovich is sending the helicopter up into the sky with an aluminium dust or whatever it is to make <laughs> sure it snows in order to, yeah because Terry's out as well so uh, I mean again uh, that uh, that could well make a, a, a key difference to the game it could to the, oh, yeah, that, the most experienced defenders out of the game that happened last season didn't it when everyone was everyone in the Chelsea side had terrible food poisoning or something and Abramovich bribed the weather so to, yeah. to make it snow and then bribed the authorities to cancel the match because there was a little bit of ice somewhere in West London yeah just I Ironically, not on the day when it was you know, bright sunshine and uh, there were those pictures of Stamford Bridge with no snow anywhere for miles around. <laughs> it's it's very difficult to predict United's lineup. I think I'm going to massively fence it and predict a draw for this game. I think Valencia's form is is so key. If he can if he can maintain it. He could really cause Chelsea some very serious problems. And I think from the Chelsea side, Drogba's still away, isn't he? Torres has definitely been coming back to something approaching form, though, hasn't he? And and it wouldn't be a massive surprise to see that explode against United. If, if Ferdinand's fit, he'll play, of course, alongside Evans. And, and Smalling would be favourites to take the right-back slot, as long as there are no fresh injuries this week. And the shape in midfield kind of picks itself, really. Uh, and Valencia obviously has to play. Carrick obviously has to play. Be a surprise if Skulls plays. I think because he's had two games in a week so I think I mean as brilliant as he was I, I think Giggs might come back into the, the side and, and Park probably picks himself on the left uh, wing and, and if Rune's fit he plays with Welbeck so come on look predictions for the weekend what do you what do you think it's going to be no midweek game next week what, what do you think United are going to do I know you said a draw but what's the actual score going to be one all and we're going to I think one all and some typical West London daylight robbery uh, from the referee I like you are going to be very sore because I'm going to be sitting on the fence on this one I believe it will be one all as well right so a couple of draws predicted we'll be back next week to discuss it for episode 100 of the Rantcast I can't believe we've made it this far you can find us both on Twitter Ed is at United Rant and I am at UTD Rantcast and we'll see you next week see you next week